Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that kind introduction. <laughs> um, <clears throat> really appreciate uh, your welcome, and I appreciate all of you for welcoming me here. It is truly a, an honor to be with you this morning to serve you uh, and to minister to this congregation uh, God's wonderful word. Anyways, uh, it, is a, it is definitely a joy to be here, and uh, I was thinking about this church and as I was preparing for this sermon. I was wondering, um, when was the last time I was here? And I was uh, remembered back, it was like was, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, I think it was on the occasion of your second anniversary that I had an opportunity to be with you. And so I realized, wow, you're, uh, you're going to be celebrating 12 years. I come in January, I believe. And that's a wonderful and amazing period of time. Uh, uh, it seemed just not long ago, really, that... Uh, uh, Pastor John came up here and planted the church with uh, some of your families, some of you uh, that are here. Um, but then in the blink of an eye, uh, you know, here you are 12 years later with a uh, thriving church, growing healthy church under a faithful shepherd leader and Pastor Mark and your fellow elders of this church as well. Uh, it is a, a joy and I just know that because of their training background, I know that and the people that have come to this church, people have left our church to come here. So I know that this must be a sound church full of good doctrine, good teaching, and a loving body of Christ. Uh, because that is what every church of Christ uh, is, strives to be for the honor of Christ and to, uh, to glorify his name. Well, uh, I have the privilege to bring you a word from the book of Numbers this morning. So if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Numbers. And we'll be in Numbers chapter 25. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, Numbers is one of those books, in fact, it's one of those books that you will seldom hear a sermon on, at least uh, a series through. It's, it's, a tough, it's tough to kind of uh, preach through this Old Testament narrative book. It is a uh, uh, so, but I had the privilege to do that for our congregation this past year and a half, and we just completed this book. So, um, I hope that uh, some of the some of the principles that we can draw from this book that I've that has been encouragement to us a Bible, SFBC, and can be an encouragement to you. And uh, uh, another change since twelve years, ten years ago, is uh, I need glasses now, and I can I need them to. But the funny thing is, I I don't need them to preach, but I do need them to see far away sometimes. Anyways, um, you know, it's, I'm thankful for Christ Church. I'm thankful for this Thanksgiving season for the church that I get to be a part of, and I'm, I'm thankful for this church. I'm thankful for many of you uh, that I've, I think on, over the years I, I've met because some of you have come to our retreat, just as Pastor Mark mentioned, to serve and minister to us. And the and to hear that you continue to, uh, to uh, desire to be in, in this, uh, this relationship with us, it's a joy to me. Uh, really, we really are blessed when you come and serve us during our retreat, and, and we hope that we can be a blessing to you. But like, when I think about faithful churches, like Lighthouse, like uh, SFPC, um, and I think about the faithfulness of, of folks uh, over the years, I also instantly think about that one, that investment principle that you probably hear and you read on every investment website. And that's this statement that says, past performance is not necessarily indicative of future results. That it's wonderful that we, that we rejoice in our past and our, oh, God's things that we have done in the past, but even that is not a guarantee of continued faithfulness into the future. 
there is always a, a real and present danger for the church of Jesus Christ. That dangers around us, if we allow them, can hinder us from being a healthy church, a gospel-preaching church, a, a church that loves Christ, a church that proclaims Christ in the midst of a sinful world. Sometimes the churches can go on through life, especially at stage where SFBC is at, we're nearing 60-plus years. It's easy to, to just kind of rest in our laurels, to, to just kind of take things for granted, and to be unaware and, and assume that ministry and programs and property make a church healthy. But they don't. They can often... Just they're just the, the what's on the surface that we see. It's the commitment and the, the devotion and the of the of the people of God to the things of God. And one of the great dangers to a healthy church being continue to be healthy in the future is the influence of the world, the influence of the people, the the, the institutions, the different organizations, the, the media that is all around us. In fact, this is not just a, a warning that, we, that we'll find in this passage, but it, we, we hear this warning in Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 to 18, Paul writes these words, and familiar words, to, I believe, to us. And he says to the church in Corinth, Do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony has Christ with Belial, or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean. And I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In Paul's letter, God warns the church of the influence of the world, the influence of the outside, the institutions outside, the influences outside. He warns the church to be holy and to be set apart. Christians are not to be bound together, unequally yoked with unbelievers. There is no partnership, fellowship that a Christian can have with the world. Like Christ and Belial, the, another name for the devil, like the temple of God and idols, these things, these things have nothing in common. For the reality is that God dwells in our midst and we are his people. So therefore we must be on guard to not allow the, the world to influence us. We're to be the influences of the world. We're to be the salt and light. We must not be influenced by the world's philosophies, by the world's principles, by the world's practices. And what is true in this warning for the church in Corinth is true for the church in the Bay Area. What is true for SF Bible is true for Lighthouse. We are surrounded, of course, in our world, and you know it very well, just as we all do. We are pretty, we're pretty connected people. We can't help but be exposed to the world. We see it in our media, our social media, uh, television, radio, internet, uh, various things. We're surrounded by secular speculations, really, what they are, often called philosophies, that are raised up against the knowledge of God. We learn it in schools that we attend, the things that we watch or read or listen. And 
the danger for the church is that you can't leave this world. And so the, these influences are, are around us. You can't help but intersect with them and hear about them. And what we need to do to guard ourselves from that is, word, is that we need to be filled with God's word. And that's why we preach from God's word. For God's word is that which equips us to resist the, the thoughts and the temptations of the world to be influenced by them. Rather, for us to think rightly about those, the error, and see the errors for what they are, so that we can continue to speak truth to those errors and around us in our world. But if we are not discerning, if we don't have God's word, if we don't have that shield of that protection from God's word, then slowly and inevitably every church will succumb to secular idolatry and immorality. And if you ever need a reminder of that, just look around for beautiful, empty buildings in the cities that you dwell in. In San Francisco, we have tons of them. Tons of magnificent, beautiful buildings like this. Built by a generation or two ago by a healthy, vibrant congregation. But now sit empty or worse is used for some ungodly purposes. If there is a service that's held in these churches, what comes out is error. What comes out is heresy. What comes out is far from the truth of that first generation that built that church, that built that building, that built those programs. We must not be a church like that. You must not be a church like that. This morning's passage, Numbers 25, is a sobering reminder to the people of God, of the dangers of succumbing to the ungodly influences around us. Numbers is a book about Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And its connection with us today is that Israel is wandering, is on a journey through the wilderness. And its connection to us today is that we as the church of Jesus Christ are also on a journey. We're called sojourners. We're not we're not dwelling here. This is not where we permanently live. We're just aliens and strangers in this world. We're moving through this world as travelers. We're here for a little bit, and then we're here for a little bit. But this is not our home. We're heading to a home, a place that's promised to us. A promised land, if you will, but a promised place in heaven. And so this book connects with us and from then to us today is that we too are like Israel. Though we are not Israel... Get your, get your dispensationalism correct. But it is still lessons for us, as we'll see that it's references in the New Testament. This book records for us the tale of two generations. Two generations of God's people, and with each generation, God always shows himself faithful. No matter what generation we dwell in, God shows himself faithful to his promises and to his people. But what we find in this book is that though there are two gener succeeding generations, oftentimes, like the generations of God's people are often find themselves unfaithful. Here in Numbers 25, the, the second generation has been led to a, 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 the cusp of, a, of the promised land. They're in a place called the, the Plains of Moab. It's really, if you think about Jericho as being the most significant city, that the first city that they conquered, you know that, you know that name very well. If you cross east to there, the Jordan River, you'll hit the Plains of Moab. And the description is that Israel is camped in the plains of Moab across the Jordan River opposite of Jericho. So they can see where they're going to they're conquer the land real soon. They can, they can smell the promised land. 
And though they are, Lord has led them here to this place and camp, and they are two million strong in the wilderness, unbeknownst to them, even as they're looking at the enemies across the river, they do, they do not realize that they are surrounded by enemies in the plains of Moab. The evil forces in the Moabite king, King Balak, and the Mesopotamian seer named Balaam have, com- have worked together to destroy them. In the previous chapters, we've seen this, or we, you would, we see this story to, uh, work out where in Numbers 22, the king of Moab sees how Israel is there. He wants to destroy them. So he hires, he, he, he knows that he can't defeat them, so he gets a weapon of mass destruction. He hires a, he hires a seer to come, Balaam, who will, a, a div, diviner who will pronounce a curse upon them. If you don't have enough natural force, you call upon supernatural forces to destroy them. And that's what he does. He calls Balaam to come. Balaam comes, and at first he's unwilling that eventually God, with some restrictions, allows him to go. There's that humorous story about Balaam and the donkey in Numbers 22. And so eventually he arrives to King Balak, and in Numbers chapter 23 to 24, over four different oracles, prophecies, if you will, through the prophet Balaam, the, an unbelieving prophet Balaam, God affirms his blessing upon Israel, that whom God blesses, no one can revoke. If God has promised to bless you, no one can change that, for God is the one who's made that promise. And sadly... While God remained faithful to Israel, in our passage today, what we're going to learn is that we observe how Israel sadly becomes unfaithful, is unfaithful to God. They fall into idolatry and immorality. The idolatry and immorality, sometimes we might be shocked. How could they do that? Well, we do the same thing. We... We can count our blessings. We can be thankful for all that God has done in our lives. And then we, we go out on Black Friday and we're like, click, 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 click. Oh, yeah, that's nice. Oh, yeah, I got to get that. Oh, yeah, I like that. Oh. And we put that in front of the things of God. We, materialism. Immorality. Oh. I know you need to go there. But immorality is rampant in our world. And yet, we learn, we'll learn in the story that God loves his people and is faithful to his people and discipline his people to always bring them back even when they fall into idolatry, even when they fall into immorality. As an outline for us today, we're going to look at three events, three points, three events in the affair of Peor, is what I call it, that remind God's people to guard against idolatry and immorality of the world. So three events we're going to walk through. I'd like to just walk this through this story. I'll read this story. And then we'll kind of just draw out some points. In the first point I want to observe, the first event that we see here in this affair of Peor is in verses 1 to 3, and that is the rise of idolatry. Really, how does idolatry start among the people of God? And what we're going to observe is that idolatry is subtle. Idolatry is subtle, okay? Verses 1 to 3 of chapter 25. While Israel remained at Shittim, the people began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab, for they invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel joined themselves to Baal of Peor, and the Lord was angry against Israel. 
Shittim was a location in the plains of Moab. It's actually, is literally, means acacia trees. So it was a grove, probably, of acacia trees that were located in the plains, and that's where they were camped. But while they were camped there, they were waiting for God's instructions. They couldn't just go whenever they wanted. They were always led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Whenever the cloud would move, they would move. They always follow God. So all throughout the wilderness, they never had to lack for, where should we go? Where should I go at this time? Because God would always show them where to go next. Their only decision was, are we going to follow? While camped there, waiting for God's instruction to enter the promised land, the people then, we read, began to play the harlot with the daughters of Moab. Notice who is, guilt, who is doing this. It's the people. Three times the people in verse 1, twice in verse 2. The emphasis is on the people. In verse 3, it tells us it's who is, it, who is guilty? Everybody. It's the Israel. The nation is, is guilty. What do they do? They, they play the harlot. It refers to sexual immorality, spiritual infidelity. Both are, are conveyed here. How could Israel suddenly sin against God in this way? Of course, it didn't just happen overnight. It was, was the result of a gradual process. Notice it says they began to play the harlot. So they, it's beginning. How did this begin? Verse 2 explains, for... For they, that is the women of the daughters of Moab, the women of Moab, invited the Israelite people to participate in the sacrifices of their gods. Now remember that the Israelites had no idea that the Moabites were trying to curse and defeat them. They didn't know anything about Balaam and, and Balak. This is, when you read those chapters, it all happens in, in either the council chambers of, of Balak or the faraway tents of, the, of Balaam. In Mesopotamia. They didn't know that they were surrounded by enemies. At first it seems like these Moabites who are inviting us to, to join them in their feasts are friendly. They're, they're kind of those, they're hospitable. They're inviting them to their the community festivals. You know you guys all have community festivals, right? I just think about, do you guys still have, San Jose has like the Christmas in the park. You guys have that still? I've been to one of those in a long time. But these are community festivals that every city has and communities have. And so they thought, oh, these people are just being friendly. And, and, and so they decide, they probably join with them and, and decide, oh, it seems innocent enough. Let's go, let's all join in them in their, their feasts. But what we must understand and keep in mind is that religion was a part of every ancient culture. And sacrifices were a part of their, of their festivals, their, their feasts, just as it was true for Israel as well. Um, and among, in their part of their feasts, like Old Testament sacrifices, uh, for instance, the peace offering, whenever <coughs> those were offered or at different festivals, a portion of the food that was offered to, their, to gods would then be shared by the worshipers in the feast. And, these, uh, and so likely, these, that's what happened here in these, uh, with the Israelites and the daughters of Moab. They're invited to the sacrifices of their gods. They ate the food and bowed down to their gods, you know, in the, in the name of community, you know, uh, community activity. But they were, and they were probably just joyous occasions of feasting, dancing, and drinking. Not necessarily wrong to do those things. But they were the beginnings of participating in the worship of 
the religious activities of the Moabites. The practice of these feasts involved bowing down to their gods. I don't know about you, but uh, I come from a family of um, uh, Chinese immigrants and from, from Philippines and then China. And in my family growing up, we, uh, we had our, my great-grandfather, their photos of my great-grandfather, grandmother, on the, on the ancestral altar. You guys, maybe you have that. And uh, every, occasionally, I think it came out to like twice a month. It felt like it was twice a month. I don't remember now exactly. Uh, my father, and my, my grandfather and grandmother first would, then my father took it on. And uh, they would, and they would invite our whole family to participate. And they would light incense. They would put some oranges. They put some apples. They put some, you know, uh, some chicken up there. And uh, we'd light the incense, kind of bow a couple of times. And, and then what you know what we do? Then we take the oranges down, <laughs> eat them, take the apples down, eat it, take the chicken down, eat it. You know, that's what we did. It was a religious activity that involved eating. And that's kind of what was taking place here, but in a greater, grander scale. A community festival that involved idolatrous activity. Now, perhaps some of these Israelites thought these feasts were, were innocent ways of just simply uh, getting to know their neighbors, uh, just sharing a meal, of uh, being friendly. It was just respecting their culture. But the sacrificial feasts and bowing to the gods eventually led to not only idolatry, but immorality. Of course, the deeper in they went, a common practice of Canaanite religion was sexual immorality with cult prostitutes. The men of Israel were enticed into this immorality with the Moabite women as part of their worship of Baal, who was the Canaanite god of fertility. Peor, the name why it's called the affair of Peor, Baal of Peor, Peor is a reference to one of the nearby mountains. In fact, it was one of the nearby mountains where Balak had invited Balaam to go up to. It was one of those holy places where they worshipped Baal and where he, they offered sacrifices before they tried to curse Israel. I saw that back in uh, Numbers 23, 28. So in this way, as Israel participated in these feasts, which involved idolatrous worship, which involved even furthermore immorality on the heights, these high places of the mountains of, of Peor, that they became guilty of playing the harlot of their not only sexual immorality, but their idolatry, their religious idolatry against God. They joined themselves to Baal of Peor. And this is exactly what God had warned Israel about on Mount Sinai that would happen to them if they would build, have covenant relationships with people around their land. Back in Exodus chapter 34, God had forbidden Israel from making any covenant with inhabitants of the land. Exodus 34 verse 15 to 16. If you read there, you'll read this. He warns them not to make a covenant with the people around them. He says, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite you to eat of this sacrifice, and you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons and also to play the harlot with their gods. By not separating themselves from the pagan Moabites, Israel was seduced into idolatry and immorality. 
what began as innocent, just cultural understanding, respecting their culture, joining in a meal, became idol worship, became immoral sexuality. Of course, what is not mentioned in this whole chapter is how this all even further started, or who initiated the plan. Whose idea did this come from? It's later in, X, in Numbers 31, verse 16, that we learn that it was, quote, through the counsel of Balaam that caused the sons of Israel to trespass against the Lord in the matter of Peor. So it was actually Balaam's idea that Israel fell in this way. He was the one, according to Revelation 2.14, that kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. Balaam, you remember, was unsuccessful in cursing Israel. He knew that he could not curse Israel because God had chosen to bless them. And the only way that Israel would be cursed is by through their own actions before their God. And so he was one who suggested to the Moabites and their ally, the Midianites, by the way, of this plan to, to cause Israel to stumble through their own, joining together with them in their idolatrous and immoral, immoral ways, knowing that God would pour his wrath upon them and discipline them. And just as Israel fell into idolatry and immorality in the plains of Moab as they're waiting upon the Lord, the lure of idolatry and immorality remain every bit of reality and a temptation for the people of God today. The predominant idol today, now we may not live, well some of us do, um, but we may not be often invited by anyone to go worship an idol, right? We seldom these days. Um, but more than likely, we are, uh, the predominant idol in our country, in our area, is probably the idol of self. It's, it's that self is, is more important than anything else. We have this idea of self-importance, self-esteem. When the world tells you to just do whatever your heart tells you, or... Do what feels right to you or just pursue your desires. There's, you know, maybe some thing that in that way that it could be a, a half-truth. But if you follow that to its end, it, it is absolutely the idolatry of self. It's a self-worship that places my will above anybody else's will. Your will. You can't tell me what to do. No one can tell me what to do. He cannot tell me what to do. In fact, he doesn't even exist. Of course, this self-worship, as we know in our culture, interacts with sexuality quite a bit. You can do whatever you want with whoever you watch, whenever you want, as long as you're, you're both willing, is the general rule. And to get us to join them in their evil, the world tries to influence through the various institutions Education, government, movies, music, and even sports. The secular world is trying to influence the church to join them in their immorality and idolatry. Or at the very least, they just want us to be quiet about what we think. They want to normalize their wickedness. They want to accept and even celebrate with them their immoral lifestyles and unbiblical identities. And if we do not bow down, then we are labeled evil. But we, you and I know that it is because that they have rejected their creator that they have everything upside down. 
calling good evil and evil good. But it is a subtlety. It is when we accept the, the philosophies, the principles of a world, which through, especially through our music and our movies, that undermine, can, if, we're not, if we're not discerning from God's word, it can undermine our convictions in following the Lord. Allows us to join with them in their idolatry and eventually their immorality. Sadly for Israel, Balaam's scheme worked. Holy God must punish evil. He justly punishes evil. And his wrath is raised upon all who sin against him. And holy God was angry with his people, especially when it's his people. So we see the next event in the story is the response to idolatry. In Numbers 25, verse 4 to 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the leaders of the people and execute them in broad daylight before the Lord, so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. So Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you slay his men who have joined themselves to Baal of Peor. Then behold, one of the sons of Israel came and brought to his relatives a Midianite woman in the sight of Moses and in the sight of all the congregation of the sons of Israel while they were weeping at the doorway of the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced both of them through the man of Israel and the woman through the body. So the plague on the sons of Israel was checked, and those who died by the plague were 24,000. We see here the, the severity of idolatry. Israel had violated the first and second of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any idols nor worship them. Here they were, putting the God of Baal, before God and worshiping him through the, the cultic practices. They joined themselves with Baal of Peor, a false god. And God, and God had just protected them <coughs> from the cursing, the attempted curse of Balaam three times. But and just here they are, having been delivered from God, by God, they turn around and turn their backs on him and join with the very gods of their very enemies who were seeking their destruction. They had broken God's covenant, and God in his holy justice and wrath disciplines his people. As we see here, the instruction, the discipline is sustained by God in verse 4. It's passed on by Moses in verse 5. And it moves from what's called, what, we call, what I would describe as from a general instruction to a specific instruction. First in verse 4, the general instruction that God instructs Moses to Simply execute the leaders of the people. All the leaders of the people are to be brought to the front and executed before God so that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. That's severe. Seldom in our world are all the leaders brought before anything to answer for the, the evils that they lead their people in. It's often these leaders almost just jet away and, and get away from, with their, their crimes and their evils, leaving the people to suffer. But here God is clear. He knows, 
these leaders have a responsibility to lead their people. They were to be the examples to follow. They were not, they were to, if the people went into sin, they were the ones who just step in and, and stop them from sin. But they did not. They failed in their task. And they were, as, the, as leaders, they were to be punished as the representatives of the people. But second, that's a general instruction. God says, kill all the leaders. But secondly, it moves into a more specific instruction. We see the more specific instruction in verse 5. He, Moses passes on the instruction to the judges of Israel to slay those who have joined themselves to Baal. Now, at first reading, when you kind of read verse 4 and verse 5, it seems that Moses has... Has he disobeyed, it seems, and one may start kind of wondering, did Moses disobey God here? Did he, did, it seems like it's not the same identical instruction. He seems to be giving a different instruction, isn't he? But if you remember, God is very, God is a holy God, and God holds his servants to high responsibility and accountability. Back in Numbers 20, when he told Moses to speak to a rock so that water could come out, Moses had struck the rock twice. And, and he did that because he had done it one time. He struck it once and water came out. And, but he was angry. But he, in that simple disobedience, God called him out and punished him by basically allowing him, to, uh, allowing him not to enter the promised land or forbidding him from entering the promised land. But God doesn't express any anger toward Moses or correct Moses here. He doesn't say to Moses, you have not, you have failed to treat me as holy. And so the absence of any correction from the Lord is more likely that Moses here is simply passing on uh, more specific instructions that God intended. That God wants to publicly punish the leaders of the nation, but to be specific, those leaders of the nation that were guilty of idolatry and immorality and leading the people astray. But that was, God's, that's God's, that was God's punishment for the leaders. But he, God's wrath was upon all Israel, for they were all guilty of sin. For the general population, God was also punishing them. Later in verse 9, we read about how there was a plague that was moving about the nation. God uses plagues. God uses diseases to, to discipline his people. What God, what we see here, this is this overriding, just general principle that this is just death coming from sin. Whether we know that New Testament principle, the wages of sin is death. And we see that here. The wages of sin is death. Idolatry leads to death. Immorality leads to death. All sin leads to death. Then just as Moses gave God's instruction, and just as he passed it on, and they're about to, you know, they're carrying, they're, you know, carrying out their, uh, their, um, their charge, the judges would probably have been the Levites, and outrageously, even more heinous, wicked thing happens right before their eyes. Whereas the idolatry and immorality up to this point had taken places in the high, taken up in the high places of Peor, in the mountains, in the, where the people practiced their religious worship. But here in verse 6, one of the Israelites actually brought one of the Midianite women into the camp in the sight of everyone even while many were weeping before the tabernacle, they were probably weeping because there were some who, who didn't fall into sin. They were weeping for and asking God to help. They were weeping probably because there was disease. There was already a plague going through the camp. They were experiencing the judgment of God. 
But then the audacity of this, this one Jewish man, leader, brings a Mennonite woman actually into the camp where they commit their idolatrous and immoral actions in the sight of everyone. And when Phineas, the grandson of Aaron, saw it in his zeal for God, he, he acted immediately. He did not allow it. He, was, uh, he immediately took a spear, went after the man into the tent where they were committing their immorality. He did not wait for them to finish. He pierced both the man and woman through with a spear. And that act of judgment in that, in, in that zeal brought an end to the plague of God's wrath. And before that, 24,000 lives had already died. God had disciplined his people and would have kept doing so were not for the intercession of Phineas. We're reminded here that if the people of God ever fall into immorality or idolatry, if you and I fall into immorality or idolatry, you can be sure that because you belong to God and you are his people, God who is jealous, a jealous God who is jealous for his people will discipline us to bring us back to himself. As Hebrews 12, 6 says, for those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. As he scourges every son whom he receives. Of course, we've spoken earlier of the idol of self that the world influences, but there are still, of course, many other traditional idols that we may worship. Real idols, but most like all, but common in our day are also just idols of material possessions. Anything that we love more than God. We are to love God with all our being, right? All our heart, all our mind, all our soul and strength. But if we love anyone else or anything else more than God, that's, that's an idolatry. It's a form of idolatry. Yes, and especially with Black Friday just passed, it may be our possessions. Um, it may be, I know, <laughs> just think about possessions, think about it. And it happens, doesn't it happens pretty early on. I know our, our kids are looking forward to Christmas. But you know, it's, it's a, as a parent, we would love to give them stuff, right? But uh, it is easy. I can see how easy it is for them to just always treat their, the, the things of this world with, like an idol. They want it so badly. They want it so much. And as parents, I know many of you are out the rest of, are mindful of this. To How do we teach our kids and make sure we teach our kids not to be to worship and love the things that they receive more than they love the gift of Christ, love Jesus. And hopefully that's a, something we can be mindful of this Christmas season. But it costs some be accomplishments. Some of us are, you guys are here in Silicon Valley. I know you guys are going through a, um, many of you have probably been experiencing, companies experiencing layoffs. So I don't know many of you, so perhaps you've gone through loss. Uh, the prestige of a job. Sometimes our jobs or accomplishments are more important than the Lord. And maybe relationships. You know, I see a lot of young people here. And relationships are significant. They are. But even our relationships are not more important than God. And the Lord will, loves you too much to allow you to remain in your idolatry. God will discipline. It is a serious thing to commit idolatry and for, of God. Even more than the immorality. Sometimes we think that, uh, you know, think about the Ten Commandments. We probably think that if you ask anyone on the street, you say, what's the worst, you know, the most significant commandment? Most people say, oh, thou shalt not murder, right? I think most of us probably would, probably, the average person on the street would say that. 
But that's not even the first commandment. The first commandment is the most important commandment. You shall worship God. You know, the, it's only in the proper worship of God does it even make any impact upon how we treat our fellow human beings. Because if there is no God, if we don't recognize in God, you really can just do whatever you want. There's no absolute right or wrong. It's just what you think, it's just us debating what, what's, good, what's good, better, best for society. But if, I'm, if we're worshiping the idol self, then really it's the question, what's good, better, or best for me? And if there's no God, then I can do whatever I want as long as I can get away with it. But we know that is error for only in the right relation with God. So let's resolve to put away anything, everything, and anyone that would, who would love and seek more than God. Lastly, we see the, in verses 10 to 18 of Numbers 25, the results of idolatry, the results of idolatry. We see two results from this idolatry of Peor, the two repercussions, if you will, and that, and first is upon Phineas. Phineas we just read about and how he was zealous for God, and there's a reward for him, a reward from the Lord in verse 10 of Numbers 25. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, saying, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give him my covenant of peace, and it shall be for him and his descendants after him a covenant of a perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the sons of Israel. I'll read verse 14, 15, 2. Now the name of the slain man of Israel who was slain was the Midianite woman, uh, who was slain with the Midianite woman was Zimri, the son of Salu, a leader of a father's household among the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was slain was Cosby, the daughter of Zur, who was head of the people of a father's household in Midian. The Lord speaks to Moses again, and this time he gives a word of commendation to Phineas. Phineas is credited single-handedly for turning away God's wrath. God's wrath was not only going to be execute all the leaders, and especially the leaders that were, that were um, guilty of idolatry and immorality, but there was a plague that was also spreading throughout the whole camp, and it was just moving along. 24,000 people had already died on, on that day. But Phineas's sole action turns away God's wrath. It's like he stands before between God's people and God's wrath, and he intercedes, not as a vigilante because he was a Levite. He would have been one of the judges. He would have had authority to bear the sword, to carry out the, the justice of God. And his zealous jealousy for God, as he intercedes and strikes man, is, 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 a, is commended. Because he shares the same jealousy as God does for his people. And Eliezer, in carrying out this judgment on behalf of God, spared the people from the experience of the full wrath of God. God could have had every right to strike down every single Israelite if he wished if, for, for their sin. But he, God did not because of Eliezer. I mean, because of Phineas, I'm sorry. <laughs> if I say Eliezer, I mean Phineas. Phineas, we read, had and quite significantly, quote, made atonement 
for the sons of Israel. Normally, and norm, uh, normally, Phineas, uh, normally priests make atonement through the death of an animal sacrifice in the place of guilty people. But in this case, the atonement is made through the death of the guilty, of the guilty individuals, the two that were mentioned here, um, Zimri and Cosby. But of course, we see here an example that God is that God commends those who are zealous and jealous for him. You know, and, and there's an there's a encouragement, just a devotional encouragement really for us to, to be, don't be people who are practicing and joining in what the world is doing, but be like Phineas. Be someone who is jealous for God, who loves God, and will, be, will stand up for what is right even when the rest of the, of the people are, standing, are participating in what is wrong. It took a lot of courage for him to do that. But even more than that, that devotional encouragement, he would become all the priests and eventually, even especially the high priests, are types of Christ. Hebrews brings that out. So you can't miss the, kind of the, the illusion here, really, even of Christ, of a man who single-handedly, out of jealousy and zeal for God, steps in and intercedes for the people where all of them were doomed course, our Savior went even beyond what Phineas does, of course, and he doesn't just, it's not because he strikes down anyone. He offers up his own life to be struck down for our sins, to intercede on behalf of us so that he would take upon God's wrath and make atonement for our sins. Well, verse 14 15, furthermore, tells, reveal who the people were that were killed, Zimri and, uh, who, and Cosby. It's interesting to note that Zimri was a leader of the Simeonites. He was the son of Salu, who was the, probably the tribal leader of the Simeonites. So this was no unknown person. He was a son of a leader, perhaps an up-and-coming leader himself. The Midianite woman, she was no, nobody either. She was a, a princess, one of the daughters of the heads of Midian. And as leaders, these young, these young, this probably young couple here, their lives were like uh, were were probably people lives that people looked up to and wouldn't want to imitate. They were like the lives of the rich, young, and famous today. They're often admired and imitated by others. But Zimri and Cosby's actions led others to follow after them, and. In fact, it's quite interesting that among later on when the second census is taken of the generation of fighting men of Israel, when you compare Numbers 26, the, the second census, with the Numbers chapter 1, the first census, the only tribe that has a significant decrease in soldiers is the tribe of Simeon. Some 35,000 or so plus a decrease in fighting men. And it's most likely because of this incident, where Zimri, who was the, of the least sons of the Simeonites, led his most likely led some of his fellow Simeonites to join him in his idolatry, and they too experienced the plague. Where some of those who were died in the plague. And this is a sober warning, and just as an uh, uh, encouraging thought or devotional thought for us that 
how we live our lives, as leaders especially, influences the lives of others. If we allow idolatry of sin in our lives to go unchecked, it leads others. If you're a leader here in the church, you know, in a sense, God holds us all the same, holds us all accountable. We're all accountable for our sin. But if we're leaders, especially if many of you are, are young leaders, you're, you're, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're putting in a place of leadership, how you live your life. If you, if you are caught up in idolatry and morality, it influences others. Maybe it won't necessarily lead them to follow you, but it may give them a reason, an excuse for when they fall into sin. And especially if those are their parents. Oh, I know it as a parent, boy. <laughs> you know, I used to tell people when I became a husband, that's when I realized how sinful I was. But when I became a parent, I realized how much more sinful I am. And uh, I've come to see, and, and my kids are eight and six, and love them dearly. But especially as a parent, many of your parents, it's so, it's a, we strive, and we strive to live godly lives, but if we're not careful and we allow our sin to go unchecked, our kids copy us. Thankfully, there's the grace of God in their lives. But parents, uh, how we live our lives, how we live, if we, will impact the next generation, especially those, those little ones who are just watching us. Phineas' zeal, of course, results in God making a covenant with him so the highest priesthood would belong to his family line, perhaps it's his reward. It's a reward that he would become, uh, the priesthood would come through Aaron, through his father, Eliezer, and then through Phineas, all the priests would come from. It's a reward for his zeal. Secondly, the results of idolatry impact the Midianites. We see this repercussion in verse 16 to 18, the last few verses of the chapter. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, be hostile to the Midianites and strike them, for they have been hostile to you with their tricks with which they have deceived you in the affair of Peor and the affair of Cosby, the daughter of the leader of Midian, their sister who was slain on the day of the plague because of Peor. Israel from this day forward would be hostile to the Midianites. In fact, when we get to Numbers chapter 31, we actually see that Israel will defeat Midian in battle, even killing all the kings of the Midianites, even Cosby's father, as well as the seer Balaam too. It is a reminder that God will destroy all his enemies. He will judge his enemies, especially those who cause his little ones to stumble, his people to stumble. The world may scheme, but the Lord who is sovereign is in control. He will not allow the wicked to curse his people. The world tries to harass, malign, attack, and even kill God's people, but they cannot harm our souls. And they cannot do anything that our God does not allow himself. But whatever evil they scheme, you can be sure that our God will punish those who do evil. He will bring them to justice. But for us, our lives, though we fall into idolatry, though God will discipline us and he will bring us back to himself because God has blessed us and God has promised to, to bless us to sanctify us, to complete us, to make us more into the image of Christ until he brings us home. Well, we've seen in this chapter the, the 
the subtlety, the severity, and the seriousness of idolatry. Yes, our idolatry doesn't take the form of objects, you know, things that we put on our, our altars. It's not often. But idolatry and immorality still surround us today, and I think we all know that. And we who are sojourning here in this, in this world will continue to be, are continue to be surrounded by a world that is not our friend, but our enemy. For they are the enemies of God. They oppose God. And they will raise up all sorts of speculations and philosophies against the knowledge of him. And they want to invite us and include you in their joining with them in their views and in their practices. And you and I must resist the generations of Israel to come were always falling into unfaithfulness. They're always in danger and often unfailing. But for those future generations and even to our generation, Israel, what happens to Israel here in the affair of Peor is a warning to us. And Paul would make this point to bring it home in 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 to 14, there's a, there's a great summary of really what happened of, of, how to, of the, the events of Peor. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 to 14. He writes this, And now these things happen as examples for us, what happened to their, their fathers in the wilderness, that is, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally, as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. Now he goes on, and I'll skip to verse 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. We are not unlike the people of God in Numbers 25. We who live in comfort with blessings of God in Christ Jesus, one time so we're so comfortable that we forget that we're, we're actually sojourners. We're on a journey. We're not here to stay. We're not, here, we're just not, we're not taking up a permanent citizenship here. Our citizenship is there. We're not owners of anything. We're just simply renters. We're tenants. We're not. We're living in peace. We're in a war. A spiritual war that's always ongoing. We may often be unaware of the danger of living in an unbelieving world. We may not think that it's that dangerous. But we are surrounded by idolatry and immorality. In this day and age, just as Israel faced in their day and age. And we must flee from idolatry, lest we learn from their negative examples. We're to be a holy people, set apart for God, unlike the world, so that the truth of our message is not compromised. So that we might build a healthy body of Christ that stands as a lighthouse.
warning others around us of the dangers lurking underneath the waters everywhere in this world. There are lighthouses, by the way. If you kind of just go up and down, you know, coast of California, they're no longer in use. But they're still well kept. You can visit them. They're, they're, they're on state parks. They're the beautiful buildings. You know, oh, it's really cool. You go out there. They're really tourist attractions. They're not, they no longer serve as lighthouses. Don't be a tourist attraction. Be a lighthouse that truly warns people, that remains vigilant against immorality and idolatry, not only in your own lives and with your family, with your church body, but also with the world, warning them of the dangers that are all around us, the danger of sin, and that there's deliverance in the one who is the light of the world, our Savior Jesus Christ who came to die for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for... uh, the time in your word, and I thank you for your people who uh, listen. I pray that you would speak to each one and cause your word to go forth and challenge each one exactly as you would have them here. That you would cause Lighthouse Bible Church of San Jose to not be like that generation in the plains of Moab. That you would give them the zeal of Phineas that they would be jealous for you, that they would love you more than anything else, and that their, that would, their love would be manifest in how they live and how they, uh, exe- in, in the example that they set, not just for their present generation, but for the next generation, so that this church would remain a, a lighthouse in this community for generations to come. Lord, we praise you and thank you for, most importantly, for Christ. For we know that it's only in him that we have any deliverance from our sin. That there is any hope for us to fight against the temptations of our world. For it is in him that we have our way of escape. But Lord, help us to flee from idolatry. And to cling and hold to Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for our time. And may you continue to build this church. Cause it to become the church which you desire to be. Bless their leaders, Lord. Cause them to grow in holiness. Cause this church to shine brightly for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.